Exodus chapter 34. Last week we saw in our text as the Lord reveals His character. He says, I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I mentioned it's been called one of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. The the point for them was clear. God has fully and completely restored the covenant with His people, the covenant that they broke by worshiping a golden calf at the base of Mount Sinai. And then the Lord reiterates the rules of that relationship. So what we come to this morning is a return to the story. You might say it's the rest of the story from the top of Mount Sinai. God says, here's how you love me. Here's how you learn what it means to reflect my glory. So we pick up at Exodus chapter 34. We'll read verses 17 through the end of the chapter. And I'll remind you that this is God's word written to us. It's not man's thoughts about God. It is actually God's word to his people. Exodus 34, 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month, Abib. For in the month, Abib, you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leaven, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron And all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded... The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. 
This is God's word. Let's pray for the ministry of the Spirit and his help. Father in heaven, this is your word, and so we pray that you would cause it to send to go forth and to not return void, that you would accomplish through it whatever you desire to accomplish. The very places of our hearts that need to hear it, would you cause them to land very specifically there? We ask that you would give us the ears to hear what your Spirit says to the church, that you would use a sinner like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. As a, a child, you, you spend time with your parents and you begin to reflect the character and the, the values of your parents. So mom and dad, if you hear your two-year-old scolding a teddy bear in the other room as if the teddy bear was a hardened criminal, you begin to go, hmm, I wonder where they learned that. See a five-year-old who says something, it rolls off their tongue, and you never thought it sounded quite so harsh until you hear it come off the mouth of a child, then you go, hmm, it's a little convicting. I think they learned that from me. In teenage years, you begin to pick up the phrases that your friends use, the slang, the tone, the mannerisms. You begin to reflect the character and the values of those that you spend time with. So that ruthless, derogatory school lunch table and the conversations that occur there begin to be reflected in everybody who is present at the table. This could also be true in positive ways as well. Parents have a unique opportunity to instill the character and values that they want to be passed along to their children, and and it's a delight to the parent's heart when they actually see some of those values being grabbed hold of. Those can carry on into adulthood. Even a Christian teenager has the capacity to reflect God's character and His values so that he can be, in a sense, a light in dark places, the lunch table or the locker room. He has the capacity to lift up a friend group to make those conversations more meaningful and safe and even positive. Likewise, a a godly husband or wife can influence his or her spouse so that the character and the values of Christ become deeply established in the marriage. In fact, the grace of God becomes the aroma of the home. Seeking the good of others, sacrificing in meaningful ways, helping each other in spiritual growth by conversation. We tend to reflect the character and the values of those that we spend time with. Which is precisely why God says what He says in the text that we just read. His people, unfaithful as they've been to this point, are moving ahead toward the promised land. And they will either reflect the character and values of the people of that land. Or they will reflect the character and values of the Lord who has bought them. And so they will either, like Moses, reflect the glory of the Lord whom they've met, or they will reflect the tone of a pagan culture that's around them. Woven into these various commands, the strange part about Moses' shining face is is a reminder, and that is that those who love the Lord reflect His glory. So we'll see this at the convergence of where trust meets love, but also Secondly, at the point of contact where God's glory shines. So we begin at the point where trust meets love. If you jump into the text where we did this morning, it seems like a random restatement of some laws. Some of them are a part of the Ten Commandments. 
Some of them are ceremonial, like, hey, don't forget to keep these feasts. Others are, are about giving back to the Lord, either an animal or first fruits. And so you, you look at this from a distance and you go, how does any of this fit together? Well, let's first explain the various laws. What are they? Because in fact, what seems to us like a, a random smattering of laws, you can actually summarize or categorize with three C's. I'll use them like this, commandments, calendar, conscience. The commandments are three. Back in verse 14, God said, you shall have no other gods. That's the first commandment from Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It's simply a restatement. And the next commandment that God restates is in verse 17. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Incidentally, cast metal is exactly the same Hebrew word that was used to explain this golden bull that they gave themselves to. So, What's the Lord doing? He's summarizing for them the second commandment. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Of these commandments, then the last one that the Lord reiterates is the fourth commandment. Verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time, in harvest, you shall rest. In other words, when you're plowing, and it's the busiest time of the year, and you're trying to get the crops in before that first rain, and you want to make sure that the seeds are in the ground, when you actually don't have time in your mind to stop and worship and rest, that's when I want you to do it. On the other end of the harvest... When you're scrambling to get everything in, it's reached its peak of fruit and you're ready to, to cut it, but, but it looks like there's a rain cloud on the horizon. You want to make sure, I, I should just go ahead and get it in quickly. God says, even in that moment, I want you to pause and worship and rest. In other words, when your life seems too busy, I want you to worship and rest. If you've walked with us through the book of Exodus, it's somewhat surprising how often the Lord keeps telling his people to, to rest on the seventh day. He says, stop and worship. And, and, and for people like us, busy southern Christians who are really good at creating a ton of activities for ourselves, it, it seems redundant, maybe, maybe bothersome, maybe slightly annoying. Why does he keep saying it? And yet he keeps saying it. So you've got commandments 1, 2, and 4. And then the Lord reminds them of the calendar. Look at verse 18. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. I don't know if you remember in our earlier sermon how important the order of this was. Paul just alluded to that himself. Leaven in the Bible is symbolic of, of sin. And so the feast of unleavened bread begins only after the Passover lamb has been slain. Because that Passover lamb who has died in your place is a, is a reminder that the Lord has saved you by grace. And so from here forward, I want you to begin to, to remove the leaven from your own life. Why? Because you belong to me. And the leaven of your sin has the capacity to infect your heart and lead you away. And then he mentions the Sabbath, verse 21, which, as I said, is either a commandment or you could say it's actually the calendar. But the point is the same. 
In the Old Testament, the Lord wants his people to to stop on Saturday. And in the New Testament and beyond, he wants us to stop and, and rest on Sunday. Why? Well, there's a ton of reasons. But as a weekly rhythm, you don't serve a slave driving master and nothing says that your God is merciful like getting the command to stop. You don't actually have to pick up your burdens. You can trust me. In the same way you close your eyes at night and you wake up and suddenly, well, what do you know? The Lord caused the earth to continue to turn. Even while I slept, I thought I was more important than that. You can also likewise set down your tools on Sunday. More than that, the Lord's day is a spiritual balm to your soul. Simply by faith in Christ, you don't have to spiritually strive. You don't have to work. You don't have to sweat or fear whether or not the Lord has received you because in Christ your salvation is secure. And so you can actually rest in Christ alone. Even if you're a student in one of those really hard majors, there's a way to govern your week. So that you get to use the other six days to work. You can use Sunday to to worship and rest. And then the Lord mentions this feast of weeks also, verse 22. It's called this because they were to count seven weeks off from the Passover. So just as the crops are beginning to grow in the ground, just as they're beginning to bear fruit, God says, you bring an offering from that first cut. It's, It's actually meant to remind them of the one who gave them the land. I'm the one who causes the crops to grow. It's it's an exercise of faith. And then after that harvest, they have the feast of ingathering. This is on the other end of, of, of the growing season, verse 22. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's actually meant to be a a joyous celebration. All the work's done. All the crops have been harvested. Let's take an offering to our king who gave us the land and who keeps feeding us from this soil. And then after that, they were supposed to go and live in a makeshift tent for a week to remind them, you know, there was a time when we had no land, when we were a people walking through a desert for 40 years and we lived in tents. Having just harvested a crop, God says, don't forget who fed you from manna is also the God who's feeding you from these crops. I provided for you daily back then. I'm still doing it. When I was young, I used to enjoy going camping with some friends in late November after Thanksgiving. That Friday afterwards, we'd gather together and we imagined at 18, 19, 20 years old, we're going to be doing this when when we're 50 I think if we were to try to get together today, a good 80% of us would go, "Mm, I don't think I want to sleep on the ground. Mm, It's a little cold. You have to understand, don't you, that when they get to the promised land, camping isn't going to feel quite as fun as it used to. So every year there is a built-in moment for an annual camping trip to remind them you can actually celebrate God's goodness. You don't have to camp anymore because the Lord has brought you home. You categorize these random commands into three C's, commandments, calendar, conscience. That's the third one. There's a portion of these laws that 
that seem really random to us. They include things like verse 19, all that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, all the cows and the sheep. He explains various ideas for how to redeem something, that is how to buy it back. And then he says that strange comment, verse 26, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I explained all of these things in previous sermons, but the the point is generally this. Yahweh says, everything that you have belongs to me, and especially you belong to me. So do not live like the pagans around you. I don't just want you to be obedient to 10 rules. I don't just want you to observe my calendar. I actually want your whole heart your entire being, because everything that you have flows from my hands. And I, in fact, intend to give you abundance and safety and peace. And all of these commands, which seem strange to us, are God's way of saying, when you get to the promised land, when you arrive at a place of abundance and safety and peace, remember that all of the blessings that you enjoy are only yours because you have a relationship with me. In other words, don't stare at the blessings and forget the one who gave the blessings. How silly a young girl would look if she got utterly consumed by her new engagement ring. And all she could do was stare at the ring And all while staring at the ring, she forgets the man who said, I I want to give this to you as a symbol and pledge of, of my desire to be married to you. That's what the Lord's saying. Don't just stare at what I've given you. Stare at me and love me. There's nothing new here. So then why does God remind them of these particular instructions again? Not other ones, but just these. Because a wise, loving father knows his children. And these instructions speak directly to the heart issues which were behind the sins of Exodus chapter 32. And those sins of chapter 32 are the identical temptations that they are going to face when they walk into Canaan. Really? Yes. The temptation to make friends with the world? To forget the Lord? God says you'll become like those that you spend time with. For most of us, it's actually not because we decided one day to to love the Lord less and love the world more. It's because somewhere deep down, perhaps many of us, like them, don't trust the Lord enough to put away the idols of our affections. Because like our forefathers, if we, if we cast those things away, what am I going to do in the moments when I have to wait upon the Lord? Maybe you don't trust Him enough to surrender the false gods that promise to make you feel comfortable or secure or in control. Because let's be honest, your false gods never make you wait. Maybe you don't trust the Lord enough to surrender the various gods that you have. That bottle is always present to greet you. The endless promise of the internet to entertain you, to keep your eyes busy, to keep you from getting bored or lonely, to make you feel like you're actually involved with other people who live on the other side of the globe. Man, this is great. I've got real community here. A nonstop pursuit of news or information Your addiction to scrolling through Twitter makes you feel some measure of, I'm informed. 
Therefore, I'm protected. I'm safe. But do you trust the Lord enough to put away the false gods and to actually feel what it means to need him? Do you trust the Lord enough to to experience a sense of, of loneliness and be okay? Because the Lord is the one who secures you. And even if you have to feel uncomfortable for a moment, the Lord is the one who secures your comfort. And then secondly, do you even love the Lord enough to devote your heart fully and faithfully to Him alone? You see, ultimately, these laws address the place where where trust meets love. That's That's the crossroads where they failed in the past. It's the crossroads where they will be tested when they go to the promised land. And friends, it's actually the crossroads where you and I will be tested too. You trust the Lord enough to put away the false gods that ensnare your heart. Do you love Him enough to say, God, I I actually desire to be single-minded in my devotion to you. And then, like them, have you learned to create life patterns that nourish and strengthen your relationship with Christ? That's actually all He's saying. All these things that you and I read in 2023 as laws. God's saying, build your life in such a way that your heart is guarded so that it learns to love me and turn away from the world. That's what he's saying to them. When you live in the midst of the world, you must create patterns that point your wayward heart back to your faithful God. And so for them, he says, if you heed my commandments, you build your calendar. In fact, your life around me, it will serve to guard your heart. And I wonder if you've constructed patterns in your life that point you back to the Lord continually. Look at verse 27. Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I've made a covenant with you and with Israel. As I said last week, suddenly this is all good news. Their sins, as ugly as they are, did not forfeit God's grace. Those who love the Lord reflect His glory. That's the place where trust and love meet. It's a summons for them. To, to, to grab hold of outward patterns that will help guard the inner heart. But secondly, there's a point to address the heart itself. And this is where God's glory shines. I think a careful reader of this text would come rightly to this latter part and have a justifiable question. Like, what's the point? Moses is the narrator. Why does he include this little tidbit about his shining face? And then you add to that, one commentator makes a point. He says this paragraph is written in an elevated style that is almost poetic, with epic amplitude, with a rhythm resembling poetry. I'm sure I've never used the word amplitude in a sermon, but it's meant to tell us what Hebrew scholars notice here, and that is that that suddenly the language is heightened to reflect the import of the moment. Verse 29, Moses did not know that his, the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Now, to be clear, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai at least two or three other times before this, but this never happened before. And this is so rare that verse 30 tells us that Aaron and the other people who saw Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. What's the point? What does Yahweh accomplish for them by causing the skin of Moses' face to shine with God's glory? Doug Stewart offers five implications. I think they're exactly right. 
He says, first, it confirms, even reestablishes that Moses is their earthly leader. He is their mediator. In fact, it's a direct answer to all of the accusations that they made in the very moment they were tempted to worship a bull. Whatever happened to Moses? The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Incidentally, it was 40 days that he was up there when the Lord gave him the Ten Commandments the first time. And it's 40 days again. And he comes down with a shining face so that no one could question. Moses has been in the presence of God. But secondly, and here is a great comfort. This shining face confirms God's presence. That is deeply relevant. Chapter 33 began with the Lord pulling back. I can't go with you. I would consume you along the way. You're too stiff-necked. And Moses prayed and he met with the Lord and he asked God, Lord, please don't abandon your people. So even with that first glance of Moses' face, as startled as they are, as scared, that face is actually a visible reminder. Wait, we're not going to go alone. The Lord is going to be with us. Third, it's a reminder of Yahweh's greatness. Because there is not a cow statue left in Egypt that has the capacity of making a person's face shine by virtue of running into it. This is only glory that comes to someone who has spent time with Yahweh himself. No other God on the face of the earth can claim such a thing. Fourth. The shining face actually encourages God's people that those who seek a closer relationship with the Lord can actually experience it. Perhaps not even notice the effect of it. Moses comes down with no idea that he has been changed. And then fifth, it's a seed. It's a seed meant to grow the desire to experience God's glory in a lasting way way. The Bible tells us that Moses' shining face would come and go, that it would get more bright or less bright. We'd learn that later in the Old Testament. It, it, it grows with intensity depending on his interaction with the Lord. So a sincere believer who sees Moses' face would not only want to learn to experience that personally, but he would also acknowledge there's got to be something more than these fading effects. In a sense, there's this great opportunity that shining face creates for them a longing for eternity with the Lord where they actually see Him and know Him. This verb that's used here for shown is really rare in the Old Testament. But it is not rare in concept in the Bible. I want to close by showing you three shining faces and an application for you and me. The first is Moses. The chapter concludes with a new pattern from here forward. When Moses goes back to speak with the Lord, he's going to take off the veil. When he comes out to speak, the veil's still lifted. He's going to share what the Lord has said to them. Then after he's finished speaking what the Lord says, he's going to live his normal life with a veil over him, cruising around the camp. Moses didn't put on a veil because his face was hurting him. He didn't put on a veil in order to shield the Lord. He put on a veil for the sake of the people. So the only conclusion that can be drawn, as strange as it is to us, Moses' face was somehow terrifying. It was not distracting. It was not unnerving. It was actually unsettling.
second time that we see a shining face in the Bible, it is Jesus. God came in flesh. And in coming in flesh, it is as if the Lord put on a veil. The skin of humanity veiled His heavenly glory for most of His earthly ministry. Except for one occasion, on a mountain which we studied last week when we had our New Testament lesson from Matthew chapter 17. We read it last Sunday. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up high on a mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before them. And His face shone like the sun. And His clothes became white as light. In fact, what the disciples saw on that mountain was the true glory of Jesus Christ. It's shining forth. And in fact, in that moment, it was unveiled. What Jesus revealed was not a reflection of the glory of God. It is the glory of God in the person of Christ. It's an earthly glimpse of that glory. The next time anybody sees the shining face of Christ, he is in his glory in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16. There, John the apostle receives a vision from the Son of Man whose face shines like the sun. In fact, Christ's face shines like the sun today. His divinity is no longer veiled Fast forward in Revelation to chapter 21, verse 23. And the new Jerusalem, the heavenly kingdom, is described like this. The city has no need for a sun or moon to shine for the Lord, excuse me, for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Christ. Friends, there's a day coming when all of us robed in the righteousness of Christ will experience light and the glory of Christ unveiled. Unveiled because your sin is banished. There's no longer darkness. The Bible describes a third shining face. It's not Moses or Jesus. It's you. When God encountered Moses, Moses reflected God's glory. So what happens when the Spirit of God comes and and lives inside of you? When you encounter God's glory, not outwardly as if on a mountain, but inwardly towards your hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, if the temporary... That is, the ministry of death carved on letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have much more glory? Why? Because it's permanent. He goes on to say that those who read Moses even today, if they don't have the light of Christ shining on them, they feel like there's something veiled. But those who have truly beheld the glory of Christ are being transformed, he says, from one degree of glory to another. That is, you begin now to reflect the glory of Christ and you grow in His glory. You know that, don't you? If you belong to Christ, you're being transformed by the Spirit more and more and more. And you come to reflect the character and the values of the one that you spend time with. 
The more you spend time with the Lord, the more you reflect his character and values. And in a sense, God's glory shines forth in you. In Philippians chapter 2, the apostle connects that glory to your ministry and mine. Verse 15, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like light in the world. Well, there's God's world mission. That you should shine like light in the world. In just a few moments, we will ordain and install two new elders, one new deacon. Gentlemen, your ministry in this congregation, your ministry to these people is like the ministry of Moses in this way. You have been redeemed at the cost of blood, the blood of God's Son. And you have been made by virtue of the Spirit implanted in you to reflect this glory of your Savior. And as you serve God's people, The glory of your Savior flows out from your close interaction with your King. Those who love the Lord reflect His glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we